I think that diversity isn't necessarily a problem to be solved. I think it's an opportunity. Having somebody come in that's different than ourselves, and like you said, Philistine is not going to solve a problem. It's about a cultural shift. What I'm hoping to see happen through different building blocks, because that's really what this is about. It's not about effort in one area, is mm -hmm. understanding how we can really shift our way of doing things in, in corporations, moving away from individual accomplishment to how can we problem solve together. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. This is another episode of season 10. And thank you for tuning in and spending your precious, precious time with me and my thoughts and my guests. So when I hear the words diversity, equity and inclusion, a part of me is immediately skeptical. And by the way, I am not a skeptic. I'm a very optimistic person. But it's not that I don't believe in diversity, equity and inclusion. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if that was the case. For me, the skepticism is aimed at the corporate or even institutional settings that it commonly exists in. For one, I think that many companies and institutions use diversity initiatives in a tokenizing way and I'm sure those of you who are listening may have experienced this somehow in some setting and if you have please share it with us let us know your thoughts on it the other thing is that I can't help but wonder how long are we going to continue to measure any progress um, as getting a seat at the table that were never intended to include us in the first place. Is getting the seat at the table enough? In my opinion, no, it isn't. So what we are really celebrating when a person of color gets a high position at a historically racist institution is the fact that the person is acknowledged. But what we don't realize is that sometimes it is done in an unfair and tokenizing fashion. And what does it mean if a company is LGBTQ plus inclusive but doesn't treat its workers fairly? And here's the thing, I feel like our current administration is the biggest example of this. Sorry Syrians for the bombs, but don't you feel better knowing that our vice president is the first woman of color? Now, I'm not pretending to have all the answers, but I cannot ignore these questions. Our guest today is someone I am really excited to speak to about all these things. Her name is Dia Khanna, and she spent the last few years of her career working to improve diversity and inclusion in employment at Amazon. She has a master's degree in anti-racist curriculum Dia is a diversity and inclusion columnist at the Seattle Times and she currently works as the global diversity, equity and inclusion manager at Amazon. So let's get started. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I was asking you where you located and you're based in Seattle. So I was telling you about how my husband, who's a management consultant, he used to travel there Monday through Thursday. This was like a couple of years ago. And he fell in love with Seattle. Like he has these great stories to tell. He's, he says it's a beautiful city. I've never been, so I don't know. But it rains a lot there, right? It rains a lot. It's, it is a truly beautiful city because all the seasons are there and nothing is too harsh. So I, mm. I really enjoy living here. But I'm assuming it doesn't snow there. It does, uh, just a little bit. And, and I'd say maybe if you go 20 minutes out, you'll get a lot of snow. So it's nice because you can go skiing and really enjoy that weather. So let's talk about you. First, I follow you on Twitter and you're probably one of the kindest people. I've noticed on Twitter because people can be really mean there <laughs> and your tweets are always, you know, about humility and diversity, um, which I love. And you you truly are a citizen of the world. You've lived and traveled all over. So we'll start there. Tell us where you were born, where you grew up, what countries you worked in and how you got to the U.S. Yes. So I was born in Singapore. My parents were living there at the time for my father's work. And uh, it's interesting, I was born a Canadian citizen. So in Singapore, you're not born with birthright. And so we moved to Canada when I was four years old. I grew up there. And it's just been ingrained in me from a very young age to travel and to see the world and to actually live elsewhere as well. So I've lived in uh, Japan and in Germany, and I moved back to Singapore um, with my husband, and now we're in the U.S., so I really carry those lessons with me everywhere I go. My mother uh, was born in India but raised in Iran and in Italy, and she met my father in Lebanon, so it's mm. just an interesting lens. Um, mm. And though I live in the U.S. now, I really, uh, truly believe that there's a lot of people that live here that uh, bring different parts of their culture from around the world. And they may not even identify as being American first. Thea, what does it mean to have a global lens and how do you apply it to your everyday life, your work? Yeah, I think having a global lens really means that you understand or you at least try to understand that we're all in this together in a lot of ways. So I mean, COVID's a great example of that. We may be dealing with different variations, but really there's so much that we need to learn from each other, uh, so much that we can experience with each other and really understanding that the future is about all of us tackling some of the biggest issues from, you know, a perspective that one country is not better than the other, one culture is not better than the other. I don't believe that there's a richest or wealthiest country in the world. We're all dealing with different variations of similar problems, whether mm -hmm. that's colonialism or climate change or global health and this pandemic we're in right now, whether it's racism, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment, it's, it's all over. So that's what it means to me to be a global citizen is to understand that you have a place in this world to learn from each other and also share with each other. So how do we learn from each other? How have you learned from your husband or people that 
are part of your social circle, but they are from different cultures and backgrounds. I was looking at your bio and I mean, you've met and interacted with people from all over. You have friends and relatives who are from such diverse backgrounds. So what have you learned and how do we learn? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I know you said on my Twitter, you noticed that I lead with humility. And I think that that's where it all begins is understanding that we don't have all the answers. What can we learn from other people? And it's interesting, my my husband is Ismaili and I'm Punjabi Hindu. And um, to some people, they look at us and they say, oh, you're the same, but we're so different. Our religion, our cultural backgrounds. And so I walk in step with him every day, but I'm also learning from him every day. And we exchange stories every day. So this is a part of our work is learning from huh. each other and approaching it from a place of humility saying, I don't know all the answers. There's no one person who's better than the other and then you begin to really bring down your walls. And from there you become, oh, okay, I, I learned this from this person and I learned this from this culture and I learned this from my travels here and living abroad here. And it becomes this more organic form of what can we apply from these learnings to mm. you know, what we're facing on a day-to-day basis. But I also think it's really important to credit other people because I've seen ideas taken and and saying oh this is my own idea and that just it defeats the entire purpose if we're going to learn from each other we need to also credit the people that we're learning from instead of extracting and then saying this is ours we see a lot of cultural appropriation you're absolutely right we see that in the u.s we see it in other places has there been one barrier or a number of barriers that you may have faced in this process of cultural humility and learning from others, have there been moments where you were like, okay, this is tough. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Coming to the U.S. was very, has been very challenging for me, mostly because I haven't been able to entirely figure out what my identity is here. And Mm -hmm. in other parts of the world, my identity has always been fluid. I haven't had to put a label on it. And here I feel as if there's an eagerness to say, oh, you're one thing. That's so interesting. Yeah. The term I've heard applied most is Asian. And and I've been quite vocal about this, that I don't know what that means. Asia to me is a continent and right. <laughs> all these different um, countries that I've mentioned. And then the differences between me and my husband, uh, it's, it's not as simple as that. Um, so to to put one word to it, I think, reduces the complexity, the, the really beautiful complexity, the richness of what my identity is, what a lot of people's identities are. And I struggle with that. And I think in the workplace, it's challenging because Asians are, uh, in, in technology where I work, uh, I'm told hmm. Asians are overrepresented, and I don't entirely know what that means. Um I don't see a lot of people like myself in management and leadership. And so I think we've simplified the narrative when the narrative is actually a lot more complex. The reality is a lot more complex. Sorry. Talking about learning, something that you've said in your email is that education or learning is both formal and non-formal or informal, right? And I couldn't agree more. I think some of our most profound lessons come from our lived experiences, right? 
from your lived experiences, what is the truth that presents itself over and over again? Oh, uh, such a beautiful question. I really appreciate this. Um, I think one of the number one things that come away from lived experiences is that we're a product of our families and our cultures. So mm. our lives and our learnings don't begin when we're born. A lot of what we experience has been passed down to us. And so, mm. you know, it's interesting at the beginning of this conversation, I also told you about my mother and where she was born. And I think that to reduce people to what they've experienced just in their years of living is also to rob them in some ways from their ah. histories. And so when are we actually beginning the storytelling? Are we beginning it at when we were born or are we beginning it with the generations that came before us? Um, my cousin in the UK, Nishita Diwan, has proposed this amazing project called the Wisdom Project. And it's the idea that so much has been passed down from our elders, from you know, the people that have lived before us. Mm. And so let's begin the conversations there instead of just with the people that are on the earth now. That's such a beautiful way to look at it. I feel like I see less of an emphasis on respecting elders in the U.S. Do you think that is one of the reasons why people in the U.S. are more hesitant to have those kinds of conversations across generations. We put people in these boxes, like, you know, this person belongs to this generation and that is why their experience is expected to be a certain way. But that's not true, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think my learning coming to the U.S. has also been that there's been so many groups and communities that are advocating for doing things differently that was mm. surprising to me because coming from Canada, the narrative I always heard is that the U.S. is one way. And then I came here and I, I became immersed in so many communities that were saying, you know, um, there are different ways of doing things. And I personally gravitate a lot to the different indigenous communities and how they've said, hey, you know, we've we've mm. upheld our elderly um, in our tribes for forever. Um, let's go back to the basics. I, I think what's happening is that the people that are often in decision-making roles have said, okay, let's try to find a way to figure people out. But once we usher in different people into leadership from diverse backgrounds, then we'll start bringing the approach back that we aren't limited to people that are of a certain age or a certain capability. We start bringing in people that are younger, that are older, people with different abilities. And that's when we begin to see the richness of this work. Our current season talks about food and identity. And you've had some wonderful experiences with exploring culture through foods and traditions around them. How does American individualism disrupt this? Like, how do we break bread uh, in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been very interesting to watch in practice that I see a lot of people eating at their desks or eating as a way of filling their bodies. Whereas yeah. for me, I've always associated food as a way of connecting, like you said. So... Again, if we reapproach it as food is part of work, right? If work is what we're doing to change or progress in what we're doing or critically problem solving, hmm. we often do this together. And food is just a way to be together. And what's interesting to me is food is something that every single culture around the world does. 
we don't all drink, but we all eat. Eating is mm. a way of survival. And if you look throughout history and, you know, the highs and the lows, um, people ate together, whether it was uh, if they were in hiding or whether they were dealing with trauma, um, also loss. You know, if we think about losing a family member, it's all anchored around food. So food is just a way for us to get together and share our thoughts, share our feelings, share our ideas. Um, so once we bring in that way of thinking, we don't necessarily try to clinicalize it and say, okay, food is a way to put something in our bodies. It's really a way to connect with our neighbors and our people and our community. It's a way to build community and sustain community. And it doesn't have to be done in person. So during COVID, you could be doing it at distance. You could be doing it over Zoom calls. But it's just a way to bring an informal conversation that brings down walls and really connects us. Do you have any noteworthy experiences about sharing food? Is there a story that you can share with us? Um, oh, many stories. I worked at a, a beautiful school out, about 10 kilometers outside of Siem Reap in Cambodia. And it was a, you know, a place that different people came together, mostly Cambodian youth. And hmm. we would eat together. And so it would be on the floor and we would, you know, eat local food and we would just exchange stories. And what came out of that was uh, relationship building. So what happened outside of when we were eating got stronger because we got to know each other over food. It wasn't just we separated and we went our separate ways. Hmm. And that's when we really began to see the trust building. And from there, um, a lot of very important work came out of that. So that's that's an example that's very colorful in my mind of the power of food. It's probably a difficult question to answer, but is there something that you just love eating? Everything. I love food. Um, it's interesting to me how often this answer, the answer that people give when it comes to food is something that is connected to the people that they love. For me, um, my parents celebrate Lori. We all celebrate Lori, but Lori's a Punjabi holiday Um it's it takes place in the winter and we usually gather around a bonfire so we usually eat kebabs and big pots of biryani um and so that's oh. probably my favorite food not because i mean i love the food who doesn't love biryani <laughs> but it's the it's the memory that's associated with it and it's oh. the family coming together different generations also it's the idea that family is not necessarily nuclear so it extends to people in our community and I think that's another definition that we can really challenge in the U.S., that it's not just, uh, you know, four people or, you know, man, woman. It, it really extends. And so that's that's my favorite food. And the reason behind it is because it brings people together from different walks of life. Today's episode is presented by The Skin Store. For over 20 years, The Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skin care, hair care, and beauty products with over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands. The Skin Store has covered you all for your hair, cosmetics, supplements, and of course, skin care needs. Find your favorite brands like Alta MD, New Face, my favorite, Olaplex, and more all in one place with gifts with every purchase. And right now, this is the fun part. The Skin Store is offering our listeners, immigrantly listeners, 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD, that's code P-O-D, for 20% off your next purchase at skinstore.com slash pod dot list. 
So the I want to pivot a little um and I want to talk about your work. Now your career is centered around improving diversity, equity and inclusion and I'm so excited to talk to you you specifically about this because I feel like you have the perfect perspective for it, right? How can companies and institutions avoid tokenism in their diversity initiatives because the way I see it, you know, getting seat at the table should not be our goal but most companies are just you know trying to achieve that bare minimum what do you think well first of all i think that diversity isn't necessarily a problem to be solved i think it's an opportunity and i say this because having somebody come in that's different than ourselves and like you said philistine is not going to solve a problem it's about a cultural shift Mm-hmm. and what i'm hoping to see happen through different building blocks because that's really what this is about it's not about effort in one area is mm-hmm. understanding how we can really shift our way of doing things in in corporations moving away from individual accomplishment to how can we problem solve together and how can we you know bring communities together where they're virtually sitting at a table and we can say okay now what's your idea what's your idea now let's collectively um. come to a solution and how do you do that well you bring in people that challenge each other and you bring in people from different perspectives and you also have to give them space to lead you have to give them space to create um because if we're just putting them in that seat and then asking them to be quiet or not or agree and the same people are talking that have always been talking then we're just reproducing the same problems that we always had so it's really not just about you know tokenism in my mind is let's usher in somebody and put them yeah. in a the seat but what i'm hoping to accomplish is like a critical gathering of people that are from different perspectives that challenge us to think and act differently that help us arrive at solutions that we haven't arrived at before let's talk about amazon what kind of culture do you see there because there is a lot of negative press around amazon i have a lot of issues with amazon so i'm just trying to understand in in the context of true form of diversity and inclusion what are some of the things that you've seen there yeah i think what's interesting is at amazon is it's such a large company so with large companies come challenges and also come mm. opportunities it's also a global company so we have uh employees all over the world in asia and across europe and parts of south america and also countries in africa so although our principles of doing work are anchored in the us culture we're also expanding our understanding and our influence to different parts of the world and i think it's interesting that we're seeing this happen during covid because who knew that this was going to happen so now mm. that it is happened we ourselves have to pivot and say okay now what can we learn about how to support the workplaces that are you know connected to amazon but in different parts of the world and that involves us also being creative with our thinking um and thinking mm-hmm. big as to what we can do that's different than how we've always done it. So we're we're in the flux of it right now, I would say, like a lot of other companies and we're learning from other companies, but we're also trying to lead this work. So what if a person of color gets a high position say at a historically racist institution? How much of it is 
really something to celebrate. And I've seen this with organizations that are very racist, but they'll hire, again, going back to the idea of tokenism, a person of color, celebrate it, and then be done with it. Why don't we shift the focus on creating our own tables? Yes, great point. Um, you know, one solution is to move away from the only to 30%. So if one person alone is there and they're underrepresented or, you know, it's never enough. We need support around us. And so the 30% idea is what if 30% plus and more of that virtual table is somebody who's underrepresented? Because all of a sudden... Mm you're not responsible for being the only one to suggest ideas and deal with often the microaggressions that come with that. And at mm -hmm. the same time, we should be focusing on building our own table. Um, our careers are dynamic. It's not often limited to one role. But I think my experience from within has also taught me that there are opportunities to make changes from within as long as you do it with other people. If you're doing it alone, it can be a very lonely process. It can also be a very harmful process because you are by yourself advocating for this work. But if you find a community from within and you find an entry point, which is the most important part, there's opportunities to make change. But we also need to know when it's time to walk away because if the harm is there and the change or the progress is not being made, then it's perhaps time to leave what we're trying to change and then change it from a different place. Yeah, I see there are so many barriers to entry point, but then we see systemic racism and we see racism on the basis of, or at least discrimination on the basis of accent, on the basis of name, skin color, um, ethnic identity. And most of it is just baked in to society. And some people may say, oh, it's subconscious bias. But honestly, I don't buy that. I think if somebody is choosing not to hire a person based on their skin color, based on their accent, ethnicity, nationality, then that is a very conscious bias. So how do we tackle that? How do we offset the problematic aspects of systemic racism that exists? And I know it's a very difficult question and I know you probably don't have an answer. You're just one person. But uh, I just wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, the first thing I believe is acknowledging that it exists. Uh, there's a mm -hmm. wonderful practitioner here in Seattle, diversity and inclusion practitioner leader. His name is Kirk Mead. And he says, this is the water that we swim in. So once we understand that or we embark on our journey of trying to understand this, of our awareness and our education of this, looking back in history, then we can stop trying to separate it and saying, oh, okay, we'll deal with this. It's over. Now let's get back to business. We have to understand that this is embedded, as you said, in everything. Mm -hmm. And then from there, um, I think this is where we can operationalize a lot of this and say, okay, let's actually look at the barriers that are holding back people from access. And you mentioned a lot of them here, uh, accent bias, skin color, names, often overlooking lived experience, um, under-leveling people of color. We've seen that a lot as well. Over-representation of certain races, under-representation of certain races, and then finding 
active ways to interrupt that. And I absolutely agree with you that we need to shed this idea that bias is unconscious because that <laughs> lets us off the hook and says, okay, well, you don't really know that you're doing it. In a lot of cases, we very much know that we're doing it. And I use the term we because we're all complicit in this. Uh, this isn't a switch where some it's good guy, bad guy, or good person, bad person. We're all complicit in this. We all hold some degree of privilege which means mm. we all have the opportunity to interrupt this as well. There is a thread on your Twitter, which I saw, I think it's pinned, it's called What's in a Name? And you talk about names of different people in your life and how they had to change their name um, to assimilate in the US. And it, it's a beautiful thread. Why did you decide to write that? I decided to write it because I've seen this happen over the past 35 years of my life mm. Uh, mm. and it's it hasn't changed much and what I noticed is as a mother now um, I've seen a lot of people including myself and my husband intentionally give our child a short easy quote-unquote easy to pronounce name because we've seen the pain um. that's come with the mispronunciation of names in our family and your name is probably the most personal thing about you. It's what's been used to address you. And it's really an under-discussed issue. And when your name is mispronounced, that's also your histories, right? It's also your right. parents, your family's choices. The pride that, I mean, often when you hear people giving names to their children, there's a meaning behind it as well. Often it's been passed down from generations. So it's an erasure. It's It's erasing a lot of what we hold so near and dear to our heart, our histories, our cultures. And so I think that we need to talk about this a lot more and what it means when people are left out of the workplace because it's easier for the dominant group to overlook mm. instead of understand. And again, that curiosity piece, that humility piece, that empathy piece. Are we really interested in learning about each other? And if so, begin with the name. Does your husband still use his middle name, Adam, or has he switched back to Fahim? He uses Adam and it's a mm. little heartbreaking every day <laughs> because I've seen the opportunities that have come his way on the phone, uh, on resumes, because he has gone by Adam. And then I've also seen on his passport where it's Fahim Adam Hashem, how there's been a lot of problems in immigration mm. and getting through. And as a family, it's interesting to see who gets stopped, who doesn't. We're all part of the same family. Why is it that he gets stopped? So, And a lot of this happened post 9-11, but it's not that simple. We've seen the effects of it after, many, many years after. And there was also a lot of effects that we saw happen prior to 9-11. So it's yeah. an ongoing topic. Yeah, I mean, people think that America changed post 9-11. Yes, America probably became more paranoid and more militarized. But even before 9-11, there was bias and discrimination and racism. So our history is problematic. Our history is racist. And that's what we need to revisit and basically reconcile with. There has been some historical reckoning last year after BLM, but I think a lot more needs to be done. Dia, 
In terms of name, I'm going back to the name. Who do you think is responsible for normalizing names that don't sound or are not part of the dominant population's vernacular? Is it us? Should we have those names and expect people to pronounce them, dominant populations to learn? Or does onus lie with us to teach them how to pronounce our names? I think that we have an obligation to teach people how to pronounce our name, but there has to be an opening on the other side. I believe that every room that we walk into, virtual or not, has power dynamics, and we need to mm. talk about this more comfortably, that those who are in positions of authority often have the opportunity to decide what the norm is to address people a certain way. So we can add, we certainly should advocate for ourselves. Um, but there comes a point when we also have to look out for our own uh, mental health that, and, and mm. it tends to take a hit when we have to constantly be in a fighting position of saying, okay, this is who I am. Please remember, I noticed that you mispronounced my name. I noticed that you overlooked me. There's the daily impact of feeling these effects that need to be interrupted from the people that have more power and privilege than those that don't. Mm. And again, it's not a switch, mm. but it is a spectrum and we need to hold people that have more power and privilege accountable to driving more of these conversations and creating more of these entry points. So switching gears a bit, once COVID is over, I don't know if it's ever going to be over. I mean, once we are all hopefully vaccinated, or at least we can travel. Is there one place you want to go? Because I am assuming all of us are grouped up in our houses. We've not traveled. We've not traveled far, at least. Is there a place that you miss and you want to go visit? I mean, the answer is definitely to see my family in Canada. It's been 14, yeah. 15 months since I've seen my dad. My, I think it's been seven or eight months since I've seen my mother. And my grandmother is by herself in India. So reconnecting with family. Um, but, you know, I was in South Africa last year in Cape Town in Johannesburg and Kruger National Park. And it was just absolutely beautiful. The history, uh, tragic but also an opportunity to learn and, you know, it, it, the natural beauty there. And it was the people um, I miss learning from others. And there's no other way to learn from others than on their land where they live uh, through their stories. You know, um, that's something I really hope to return to. I've always loved traveling for various reasons, but um, <laughs> there's no shortage of places. And every new place we go to is an opportunity to grow and to also share our learning. So that's something I really hope that we can all return to at some point. Is there a place that you haven't visited and you would love to travel to? Yeah, my family, uh, my husband's family uh, has migrated from many years, uh, generations ago from India to Kenya. And that's yeah. where my uh, grandmother was born. I would love to visit Kenya, uh, Nigeria. I've heard lovely things. Um, so those are top of mind. And Oman, Oman is also on my list. And in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Individualism. And I don't know if that's the the healthiest approach. It's I've learned mm. from it. I've definitely learned to advocate for myself and, and my family. But I do hope that we start to see a shift toward more of a communal way of doing things.
COVID has taught us that collectivism has its own merits and maybe there needs to be some degree of shift in the U.S., right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Thea. Can you share your um, Twitter handle with our listeners so that they can follow and read your tweets, your kind tweets? Oh, yes, I would love to. D. Khanna, so K-H-A-N-N-A-80. And uh, you will find me on there having a lot of critical conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and always leading with a global lens. So I look forward to getting to know everybody in the Twitter space. Thank you, Dia. This was great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And it was wonderful having this conversation with you. So yeah, Dia is hands down one of the kindest people I've interviewed. She's so kind. Her voice is so subtle so soothing um i had so much fun interviewing her it was like you know chatting with a friend i hope you guys enjoyed this conversation if you did don't forget to share that's how immigrantly grows we are on season 10 trying to grow reach more audience have more difficult conversations and give us feedback it's always good to hear from everyone take care